Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. Your hosts, Russell and Dr. Pete. We're solution architects based out of Australia, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. Welcome back to the show, everyone, and to this episode of Tech Chat with your hosts, Russ and Dr. Pete. Hey, Russ, it's great to be back on the show again, and uh, today we have a very special guest with us. We do. We have Werner Vogel, CTO of Amazon.com. Werner, welcome to Tech Chat. Well, welcome. Uh, thank you all for uh, for having me here. I'm uh, happy to be down on, back down under. So uh, we, we heard that you went to uh, an Australian football game uh, over the weekend. Yep. Do you have any idea of the rules of, uh, of Australian rules football? Because I certainly well, don't. It's called Aussie rules. So, you know, at least I should have an idea about those rules. Um, there's a few things that still eluded me uh, during the game, but I had been here before. So actually, I think four years ago, together with Simone, when he was still evangelist, this lone evangelist here in, uh, in all of Asia Pacific, we went to a game, so I, I still knew enough about that. I think it's one of the most enter- entertaining sports that there is in the world, actually. And so I have an opportunity, given that Swans lost, that to have um, to this Saturday to go to the City Cricket Ground to see another game by them. Fantastic. Excellent. Excellent. Well, uh, this year was 10 years uh, of AWS. It's been 10 yep. years since we released S3, and you wrote on uh, uh, segment on your blog, we talked about ten of the lessons that you learned over those ten years. So we mm-hmm. just thought we'd we'd step through those um, during the show. The first one that you talked about was building evolvable systems. And uh, one of the quotes that you said in there, you said that we knew from day one that the software we were building would not be the software that we'll be running a year later. But obviously, we didn't want to interrupt our customers. So how do, how do you approach a problem like that? Well, well, first of all, of course, you have to realize that um, nobody had built things at this scale before. Yeah, nor had anybody built what we called in those days storage for the internet. Yeah, and so, um, but, but in typical Amazon fashion, we knew that if we if we were doing this right, this was going to be really big. And I remember that on the drawing board for the design of S3. Alfie Mullen, uh, who was CTO before me, but actually went back into a developer role, he, he, he put up some numbers on the board of what we thought in terms of request rates, in terms of um, in terms of storage, what we should expect in sort of the first year, two years. Uh, and just for the heck of it, we, we, or we added two orders of magnitude to, to that. Yeah. Uh, we blew through those numbers in the first six months. Wow. wow. Yeah. Um, and I've, we always believed that sort of with one, maybe two orders of magnitude of, of growth, you have to revisit the architecture that you've built. Just with this idea in mind up front that sort of you should be able to be decomposed into smaller building blocks enough such that you can start swapping in and out the building blocks. Or that you should be able to actually upgrade parts of the system while having other older parts continue to run. Mm, So you need to make sure, for example, that 
even though you might want to upgrade your storage system, the way that you're storing objects or replicating them over different, that you do not have to upgrade all the old storage systems that you already have to be able, before you can actually upgrade your storage system. So making sure that there are well-encapsulated com components in there that even internally they have good APIs where you can work off generic APIs and off. Um, and, and where you can upgrade, for example, the index uh, separately from uh, the storage system or add functionality to, let's say, the load balancers without having to take the overall system down. So decomposition, uh, APIs, uh, automation played uh, a very important role in that. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. So, Werner, you've also often talked about um, everything fails and fails all the time. Um, mm. And you've also mentioned, you know, one of the lessons learned over the last 10 years has been expect the unexpected. You know, how do you deal with that in a very large scale system where almost everything can fail and it's so big and complicated? Well, so you have to. <laughs> I mean, it's not an option. It's not like you can make assumptions and then suddenly things go away. You know, mm. If there's one thing I learned, so before I joined Amazon, I... Um, I was an academic and I was building all these wonderful algorithms. And one, one of the things you have as an academic, you have the luxury to make assumptions about the real world. For example, that um, everything fails by stopping. Mm -hmm. Well, you know what? Everything fails by spewing out enormous amounts of garbage that just look like real data. <laughs> or another favorite academic uh, failure assumption is that Failures are not correlated. Well, you know what? In the real life, everything is correlated. Now, if you look at a system like S3, that does trillions and trillions of storage operations a day, uh, anything with even the slightest probability of failure will happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And, you know, on often on forehand, you don't know what those are going to be because this is real life. You know, you're pushing things really to the max. So instead of having some massive failure handling tree, you basically um, treat everything as a failure. Yeah, failure, being in a failure state, being is sort of normal operations. If failure handling in such a world needs to become an exception, then often exception paths are, um, those are paths that are not frequently exercised. The likelihood that you'll have more CPU consumptions are those paths, that you will have other failures on those paths, that it will trigger other failures, are um, a much high, of a much higher likelihood. So treating failures as a number of well-known failures maybe that you want to treat, but everything else, we shouldn't panic about it. You should just deal with it in one consistent way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, such an approach might, for example, be what's called recovery-oriented com computing, where basically in the, in the old days I would joke about it, you take sort of the Microsoft Windows approach, if anything goes wrong, you reboot. Right. Yeah? Yeah. Um, it's a good cure for so a lot of solution instead problems. Of, instead of trying to recover from failures, you just restart. Yeah. And at scale, with fungible resources where everything is software, that might actually be something that is very easy to do, much easier, let's say, than in the older days when everything was hardware-oriented. Mm -hmm. But the important thing is that 
um, try to minimize the number of exceptions that you have to handle. Because in general, exception handling will lead to brownouts of the overall service. You rather shoot one of the cattle than actually trying to nurse it back to health. Yeah, and this is the the, the, the famous pets versus cattle sort of uh, Paradigm. Uh, metaphor where, you know, when, when things were still hardware, they were pets. You know, you gave them names. <laughs> yeah. Know? If they went ill, you nursed, nurtured them back to health. In the in the cattle approach, things have numbers. And if you, uh, if, if, if one of your cattle gets ill, you put it out to pasture and you just get yourself a new one. Um, you know? And I think that's sort of uh, an approach that we've always tried to take in terms of failure handling. Um, realizing that there are many failures that you've never seen before that will happen. And as such, you need to be able to ready to handle them in a consistent manner that, do that doesn't force you to brown out the service. Sure. And look, one of the things that we see with our customers a lot is the issue around tech debt. You know, they're building things really quickly and certainly Amazon.com and AWS are no exception to that. You know, what do you tell customers around tech debt and dealing with it, especially if you know that there's a, a lifespan that you're going to replace that part of your architecture? Well, I, first of all, I think there's nothing wrong with technical debt. I mean, as long as you know that you're incurring it, just mm -hmm. as just as that you're going to the bank sometimes to get a loan, you do have to pay it off. You know, if you don't pay it off, you get into trouble. The same thing goes around technical debt. You know, you can't keep up ranking up technical debt uh, over time. And even even in, in, in smaller settings, you know, as you know, Amazon has always been a pioneer in the whole DevOps approach. You know, the early days, you know, you build it, you run it approach was very strong at Amazon. Um, but there's, there's nothing more frustrating when you come off your operational duty having run into a particular problem that next time when you get back onto operational duty that you run into exactly the same problem. So part of this, part of this approach needs to be that if as an engineer you come off your operational duty, maybe it's only been one night, you need to get time to fix the problems that you encountered during that operational session. Yeah? Um, and if you can't do that within two hours, it needs to go with high priority on the blackboard of your scrum. Yeah, period. Because there's nothing more frustrating than getting a page at 4 a.m. again for exactly the same thing that you got paged around before. So definitely if things have operational impact, you need to be able to actually solve them with high priority. For the rest, I think it, it depends a lot on your business culture. You know, so... Within Amazon, the retailer operating at scale, we always felt that um, you know moving fast within retail was much more important. Was more important than let's say um, minimizing uh, duplication. Yeah, and so we knew that uh, with many of these different service teams, is something that would arise in team number eight. Let's say the need for a new Java container. Then probably among your thousand other teams this same need arrives somewhere else as well. Now, instead of forcing coordination and as just slowing the business down, we allowed this duplication to happen. So you could see this duplication of technical debt as well. And so the only way to solve it is then to have other teams whose task it is to go through the company to understand what are the kind of the duplication that has happened and over time, see whether it makes sense to merge these things, to replace them, 
to see what kind of things you need to do. But you need to still allow technical debt to happen for a business reason, which is to be able to move fast. But you do need to pay it off over time. No, thank you for that. And uh, what about microservices? Because I know we used to run Amazon.com as a fairly monolithic um, architecture, and then we moved into microservices before, I guess, people called it microservices. You know, how hard was that for us to make that transition? Well, actually, we didn't go to microservices directly. We, we, we had one step in between there. Uh-huh. So um, you know, Amazon was a monolith until, let's say, end of 2000, early 2001, um, where basically because it was sort of a stateless front-end application with a massive database array in the back-end. Again, we saw that our innovative processes were slowing down because everything needed to go to the full group of DBAs that controlled the databases, which were sort of crucial in the reliability of the overall site. Um, plus, more or less, the software in the monolith had reached end of life. So we, some engineers made a very, very smart move in starting to carve up pieces of the business logic in the monolith, take the data to operate it on, and actually bring these things together in what, and put an API on it. There's no direct database access allowed anymore, except for the API. So that's a very smart move. However, we had three very large data sets that um, customers, orders, and items. Items is the, 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 the goods in the catalog. Um, and so basically what we've done, we basically had all the data, all the, all, the, all the business logic that operated on, let's say, the set of customer data would sit in one service. Um, and, and that seemed right in sort of the initial approach that we'd taken. However, over time, we started to realize that within sort of all the data that were operated, for example, all customer data, it was called the customer master service, there set a number of different services in there, each with different scaling requirements. For example, there might be a recognized customer service yeah, that sees this is, a, this is this particular customer sitting inside, this is his nickname. There might be a login service, there might be an address book service. So a whole range of different services that are used in different parts of the site, each with different reliability and different scaling re- requirements. And so what we done right in the beginning was actually taking the service orientation model. What, may have, what we've learned over time is that we should have not necessarily done a, a data-driven decomposition, but a more functional decomposition. So this is sort of what I call sort of the second phase of service orientation that happened within Amazon. These days we call that microservices, but in, 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 in those days it was still a much more, f- going to a much fine, more finer grained um, service orientation within Amazon. So one of the other things, Bernie, you talk about is giving customers primitives, not frameworks, that you give yeah. them the building blocks to allow them to create their own architectures and their own and their own patterns. How often are you surprised by the direction that customers take some of the services? Well, um, frequently, <laughs> especially if you deliver new new services. You know, so sometimes you just don't know what customers are going to build with it. Um, or remember, we've, we've taken this approach. I think DynamoDB was a good example. Um, when we launched DynamoDB, we really knew that customers wanted secondary indices. Yeah, it was obvious. Uh, so... But when we launch a service, we've always taken the approach to launch it with a minimum feature set 
in a rock solid way because customers need to be able to uh, to build their business on 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 this but we really had a roadmap for ourselves that we thought that these would be features that customers would, would, would like. But what you then see is that customers are start the way that customers are using it may come up with requests that you didn't anticipate. For example, within within DynamoDB, it was the ability to actually have IAM control over individual columns and rows. Yeah, that was something that we hadn't anticipated. And by customer request, this ended up much higher on the roadmap um than than um than that we anticipated ourselves of course we still launched secondary indices and streams and all sorts of other things that we thought uh, we we would launch over over time but customers have a significant impact on the features that are being de de delivered um, what was the original question? Oh, just just whether you're surprised. How often you're surprised okay. with the direction? Okay, tools tools not frameworks. That was what it is about. Actually, that that is something that that is one of the core Amazon principles. You know, we hire the absolute best people, the absolute best engineers. You're not going to tell them, and this is how thou shall develop software. The same goes for um, for our, our customers. You know. We're not so arrogant that we tell our customers how they should be developing yeah. software. We just yeah. give them the absolute best tools they can have, and they can pick and choose which ones work best for, 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 for them. It might be um, that there is some third-party service that they like much better that run on our platform that does things in a very particular way that they like much better. Yeah. And as such, you know, AWS is so much more than just the services that we deliver. There's such a rich ecosystem, all the services that sit around there as, as, as well. And so customers should be able to pick and choose exactly those tools and those services that they would like to use that work best for the way that they want to implement their applications. Yeah, yeah. One of the other things you talk about is the fact that when you deliver those primitives, that other AWS services can actually use those as well. Do, do you sometimes feel as though you've got a kind of another internal beta testing team <laughs> that's kind of, you know, helping you to, to test the service before you roll it out? Well, um, you know, we first of all, Amazon, the retailer, we, we treat them as a customer for AWS, and we have to. Yeah. yeah? Um, there, there is no way that you can make exceptions for any single customer. So anything that you develop for one, maybe develop for the request of one customer, but immediately becomes available for all other customers. And we've seen that, for example, around um, some of the things that we've done for some of the uh, SAC and FINRA related services, um, the sort of financial services in, in the U.S., uh, some of the very specific requirements that they have, but when we implemented them, they be immediately became available for all other customers as, as, as well, of, of course. Yeah. And again, I lost my train of thought. No, that's this? good. No, you answered the question. That's great. That's great. <laughs> Thank you. So, so Fern, around automation being a key piece, you, you talk a lot about... Yep you know, uh, automation and repeatability. And, you know, we're seeing people and customers build pipelines and essentially digital assembly lines for software development and, you know, DevOps operations. You know, how do you change that mindset? Because uh, to get to that level takes a while. It's just not just a technical, but a cultural change. You know, what are some of the lessons that we've learned that we can share with customers around how to make that transition? Well, I'm not really sure whether I have that much lessons there. I think one of the biggest drivers there is the reduction of risk. 
Yeah, I think in a world that is, first of all, we live in a world that is very uncertain whether products are going to be successful or not, at least for many of our customers. It's just, you know, there's an abundance of products in the market, increasing competition, not necessarily around retail or, or AWS, but just in general. Yeah, and as such, you know, you want to make sure that the products that you build are really meeting the expectations of your customers. So for that, you need to have, like we do in AWS, have a very tight feedback loop with, with, with your customers and need to be able to, to change on a dime. Um, so to really be able to reduce risk in, 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 all, in all of this, in this sort of uncertain world, you need to be very adaptive. And for that, you need to have different development methodologies. You can no longer work for six months or even a year or two years on a particular project and then launch the product only to realize that either you're out of date or it was not really what the customers will, were wanting to. You need to become more agile and move faster and have sort of this much more iterative approach with your customers. Now, there's other systems approach in terms of risk there as well. I like to believe that if you launch, let's say something, if an update contains 15 or 20 new features, it's very hard to figure out if things go wrong, exactly what went wrong. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or if the performance is not, which pieces of the changes that you've made are actually causing the interruption of not or causing the performance to go uh, awry in a way that you didn't anticipate. Smaller, more frequent updates have the ability to be more secure, give you better control over performance, uh, give you better control over scale, just better control over the overall process. Yeah, if you if your changes are only three lines of code, yeah, it's very easy to inspect those three lines of code, or even whether it's with automated tools, to make sure that no security uh, uh, problems may arrive because of the changes that you make. If you deliver 1,500 lines or 10,000 new lines of code, that that process is going to be much harder. So more frequent, smaller updates give our customers the ability to be more secure and more frequent. Now, to be able to do that then, uh, for example, um, a company of, uh, that does it in the UK I just spoke to is called Trainline. They sell all the um, all the train tickets. And so they moved from a traditional six weeks delivery process to this continuous integration. And in the past two months, they've done 10,000 deployments. If you do 10,000 deployments, you're going to automate it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if you start to automate this process, you take humans out of the loop and it becomes a much less error prone process. Yeah. Automation in general, but is just the encapsulation of best practices. Yeah, and you will always follow these best practices because there is no judgment involved and automation helps you again to build a more secure, more reliable approach. So it's a very much an agile, you know, startup approach to getting things done quickly. So build, you know, test and measure your results and, you know, uh, alter your trajectory. You know, how are you seeing enterprises adopt to that? Because, you know, certainly in Australia, we're seeing a lot of uh, large organizations you know try to create pockets of innovation within themselves what trends are you seeing on a global scale um, that are kind of parallel to what you're talking about well i think i think what i see that first of all i think most enterprises know that they have to operate at the speed of a startup to, to today mm -hmm. because cloud together with open source i think it is a combination of these two allow every company to compete with enterprises for their businesses 
maybe not for the complete, uh, for example, in financial services, maybe not as a complete bank, but there may be slivers of things that they can be really good at. For example, international money transfer or a, a particular in insurance instrument. Yeah? And so because now suddenly neither need resources, whether it's, um, let's say, compute resources or storage or, let's say, software resources are no longer an exclusive, exclusive things that live with enterprises. So there's a level playing field. And as such, you know, you need to be able to compete at the same speed as that these younger businesses may come. And so all of this drives, I think, what probably is a buzzword these days is called digital transformation. Where most enterprises need to look purely for survival reasons to become more digital to be able to use more digital channel to deliver new goods and services to their customers, because otherwise they just won't survive. A great example in this, this is, for example, GE, General Electric. I mean, a 140-year-old company. Yeah, I think whatever was before the S&P 500, they were already on that list. They're actually the only company left of the S&P 500 that still exists. Yeah, if you look at sort of 40, 50 years ago, the average lifetime of a company on the S&P 500 was 60 years old. Today, it's 13 years. The expectation is that by 2020, 2025, 75% of the companies that are now in the S&P 500 will no longer exist, purely because competition will be heating up in the digital space and company will experience death by a thousand cuts if they don't continue to innovate. So just purely for survival. Then, of course, there's still lots of levels of efficiencies that uh, companies need to look at. Capital is still scarce. And so getting access to resources to be this innovative while actually keeping cost under control is important. And I think the first driver, first driver for uh, digital transformation is access to, to talent. You know, who wants to go work for a stuffy old company with stacks of papers on a desk? No, young talent, young brilliant talent wants to go for fast moving digital companies. And so all of these drive sort of a need for survival within enterprises to actually really reinvent themselves and be able to move as fast as that um, as that younger businesses do. And cloud plays an important role there because it actually uh, re it removes all of the constraints that there were around resources. Now you have resources at your fingertips. And what we definitely see in enterprises is a much greater focus on dev and test because it is in the world of dev and test where agility lives. That's where you develop new products, not in production. You know, production is important, it's stable, you need to serve your customers from there, but agility lives in the world of dev and test. Bernard, one of the other things you talk about on your blog is that APIs are forever. And you talk yeah. about the fact that when you created them, you knew that you only really had one chance to get it right. How difficult is that when you know you can't change them later? Oh, well, it's very hard. You know, and actually, we, this was a hard lesson we had learned from inside Amazon, even to the point that it, some things may become APIs that you don't consider APIs. Mm. For example, um, uh, I remember we had one way for sellers on the Amazon platform to insert goods into the Amazon platform that had to go through a web page. And uh, we didn't give them a way to do bulk uploads. 
but some third parties had built these tools for them who basically did screen scraping. Right. Yeah. And when we knew that those tools were being built and we didn't stop them, those tools from being built, basically that web page became an API. Yeah. Yeah. And we no longer could make any changes to that yeah. web page yeah. because now other companies which we had validated were actually using this as an API. Yeah. Then making any changes to those APIs, in this case a web page, you actually start need to work with your customers, each and every one of your customers, in this case software companies, to actually help them change their tools. And so do I think APIs, especially once customers start building against APIs, you cannot, I mean, at, at AWS scale, it's impossible yeah. to go work with all of your customers to start phasing out if you've made mistakes. So, you know, you do, you work really hard looking at also starting off with a minimum feature set to make sure that your APIs are simple, do one or two tasks really well, and then work closely together with your customers to extend the APIs with more functionality as the service grows over time. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. So, so Verna, about APIs, you know, a lot of customers still talk about enterprise service buses and those kind of technology approaches to building large distributed systems. What are your thoughts on, you know, how do we do it? Well, <laughs> how much time do we have? <laughs> uh, All night, if you like. I, I don't know. I think enterprise service bus, oh, I've, I was, I've almost forgotten about that. <laughs> um, well, I have, a, I have a much stronger belief in, in sort of decentralized, decoupled, fast-moving pieces. Mm. Yeah. Um, I, I think anything that requires strong coupling has a tendency to be limited in scale. Now, not everybody needs to have massive scalable operations, yeah? Um, but I think more and more, especially if you build internet, consumer internet services, you have to be prepared for scale from day one. Yeah, and we see that, for example, also within, within Amazon, uh, you know, within AWS. Um, especially those services where we don't charge for, you have to be ready on day one for 100,000 customers trying you out. Yeah, and you only get one chance to do it right. And as such, you know, we we have a long history by now. I think of knowing exactly where sort of thing where things can go wrong on day one, how you need to be prepared for for scale. Uh, for example, with respect to authentication, to storing customer data, uh, to keeping track of your customers, all of those things are important on day one to be able to really scale. Uh, to to those those levels, mm -hmm. I think um, having core building blocks is important. We can build on more richer services. What we see actually happening within AWS these days is that we're building more and more AWS services that are being built on top of other AWS services. Yeah, for example, if you look at um, if you take ECS, the uh, the uh, EC2 container service actually runs on top of VMs. You don't see the VMs anymore, but there is basically a large cluster of VMs that you're running under cover, where on top of this, you're actually running um, running your con container services. So more and more, we see that components such as DynamoDB are, are becoming core building blocks within building other services within AWS. So we really eat our own dog food in that, that sense, because 
uh, it allows us to build new, richer uh, AWS services much faster than that we could in the past. What's also interesting about that is, you know, you talk about um, knowing your resource, resource usage and particularly in a business like AWS, which is a, you know, a low margin business, um, you know, there's certain ways of looking at, for example, how we charge for certain consumption models and patterns. And if you can't see some of the infrastructure, you know, how should our customers consider their architectures and, you know, monitoring of their resources usage? Well, first and foremost, it's, it's, we, we made mistakes, actually. Um, yeah, I, I wrote that one up because it was one of the first mistakes we make. It's actually also the only time uh, I think that we really changed our charging model. So when we launched S3, we thought that the two resources that would be scarce resources in the system that customers would be consuming would be storage and bandwidth. Well, it turned out that one of our earliest customers was a customer that's, that stored uh, millions and millions of thumbnails that he was, that he or she was serving on eBay for for products there. So in essence, in total amount of storage, it wasn't that much. You know, in total amount of bandwidth, it wasn't actually that much as well. In total number of requests, it was outlandish. <laughs> yeah. And as such, it turned out that we came to the realization that number of requests was another scarce resource in the system that we actually needed to charge customers for. So we had to uh, amend our, our resource, uh, our, our pricing model for customers to actually include numbers of re re requests there as well. Customers realized, customers were fine with it because they realized that, that this was something that they actually had to pay for um, themselves as, as well. Um, so I think more and more customers want we have really dedicated uh, approach to actually be able to measure their own resources as well um, and, and we built that in for example into api gateway so recently we launched user plans within the api gateway um, which allows uh, you as your api developer to for your individual customers that are using your apis to really set resource limits that they're using uh, really do individual metering for individual for your individual customers um, and be able to for example have a particular group of customers that get usage plan x where another ones get usage plan y um, and really build things in such that you can serve for example internal customers different from external customers yeah internal customers may not be paying external customers may be paying and so you might have different rules uh, for them and be able to really track a meter at a very fine grain level there for them. So we realize that customers need to do this and we give them the tools there to actually help them with, with, with that as well. So we talk a lot about security at AWS being job zero uh, and you talk in the blog about the fact that it was very important to get the security team involved very early in the design process yep. as, as a partner in the, uh, in the whole design rather than getting them to try and validate it later. When you talk to, to the startup community, do, do you feel like that message has permeated through to them as well, given how focused they are on an MVP? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's one of the biggest challenges I think we, we, we have to make, uh, to make our customers, and especially those younger businesses that are so laser focused on, on the product that they want to build, to make them understand that you have no business running on the internet and not take security as your top priority. Yeah. Protecting your 
customers is not just protecting the customers, it also protects your business. Mm. Yeah. Um, without that, you should not have, there's no place for you on the internet if you don't prote make protecting your customers your number one priority. Yeah. And I believe that, um, that that's, that's a practice that uh, we need to push, we continue to push much harder on. Um, and you know, there's, there's, simple, there's simple steps there that people can take. I mean, I'd like to believe, you know, we, we have this sort of shared responsibility model with, with our customers where in the simplest way to say that AWS is responsible for security of the cloud but our customers are responsible for security in the cloud, mm. yeah? Where we give them all these fine-grained tools to be able to really protect themselves. Um, and so we give them the tools and mechanisms to do so. Um, we do know that if you have to do this, if you have to retrofit this into the kind of things that you were doing, it becomes much harder yeah. than actually having this as sort of first design principles, where the first design principle is protect your customers at all costs, at all times. Yeah, because without that, you really don't have a business. Yeah. And so um, I like to believe it's working out well. I think there's some things that have happened um, in, in the bigger picture. I think four or five years ago, we were already pushing our customers very hard that they should be encrypting their data. Yeah. Yeah. And customers were also often saying, whether it's a startup or whether it's an, a, a large enterprise, they're saying, yeah, you know, sure, yeah, it sounds really good. You know, when, when we have some time left or when that particular team comes off that particular project, we'll, we'll take a look at that. Yeah. I think after Snowden, that whole conversation has become really easy. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. every one of our customers suddenly realizes that um, encryption is the foremost tool that they have to make sure that they're the only ones who decide who has access to their data. And, um, and we're very happy about it, not, not about the occurrence of the whole Snowden thing, mm. but the awareness that our customers have around protecting their data and that we actually give them tools and mechanisms to actually protect themselves at that particular level. You know? And so we integrate uh, encryption into almost all of our services, uh, especially, um, you know, where customers now these days can just bring their own keys yeah. uh, so that they're the ones who only decide to have access to their Redshift data or to their S3 data or things like that. And given given our demonstrated obsession uh, around security and the, the enterprise adoption that we have, as a CTO, do you spend less time defending the security of the cloud and more time just explaining how it works? Well, I think I think education still is a is a very important part. I don't think I don't think we have to um, explain that much about the technology that we have. I think just helping our customers or helping regulators, for example, understand what what is really the functionality that we are delivering, and that kind of the functionality, for example, around security in the cloud is superior to what any one of our customers will ever be able to achieve by themselves. You know, uh, Rob Alexander, the CTO of Capital One, for example, publicly stated that their reason for actually starting to move their services, their financial services, over to AWS was purely because security in AWS was superior to what they would ever be able to invest in. And not only in terms of the, the individual tools that we give them to protect themselves in the cloud, 
but also the operational security that they get from AWS. You know, there is no line in the sand that is good enough that says, okay, and this is good enough security. Yeah. Yeah. That line is continuously changing. And we're able to make those kind of investments to continuously keep ahead of that line. Yeah. Where that might be something that is very hard for individual smaller companies to do by themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So, Werner, you talked about, you know, the network being a very important, critical part um, as it's at the heart of the cloud. You know, can you share with our listeners, you know, uh, some of the lessons learned? I know we've recently released the uh, Elastic Network Adapter, which gives you 20 gigabits of network bandwidth or for the X1 instances. You know, what else are we doing? How else are we innovating for our customers? It, it, because well, the network is so key. Well, I, I think, you know, we've, we've learned for ourselves over time that, um, you know, Workloads, you know, network usage is very workload specific. Yeah, and, and maybe in the earlier days of AWS, our net network layout very much um, sort of mimicked that of uh, Amazon.com, where we had learned with the retailer. Uh, basically, high volume transaction processing kind of workloads. Um, and we really had to work over time seeing that it sort of more HPC-style workloads, large uh, video streaming workloads, um, all required us to develop very different network technologies to support our customers. Yeah? And so we've developed dedicated hardware over time, both at the switching and at the, at the load balancing le uh, levels, uh, to support this very diverse set of work workloads. Now, one particular area that, that we in, innovated on under the covers was that if you run multiple virtual machines on a, on a single server, they, they all have to fight for the hardware, for the networking hardware. And as such, especially if these, these virtual machines are very active, you would see significant jitter on the network, basically because they all have to fight for this constrained resource which is there. And so we developed a new pieces of hardware that allowed us to do root IO virtualization, um, basically giving, um, giving each of the virtual machines direct unique access to the network without them having to compete for that. So basically overnight, um, uh, Jitter completely disappeared from a network. And so I think it made it network performance much more predictable. And so we continue to look at sort of what are what are causes for customers to not get sort of the predictable performance that they're looking for, or how can we uh, support, for example, with EBS uh, provisioned I/O and things like that. Uh, how can we how we can we continue to work there to make sure that customers get a very good networking experience um, when running in AWS. One of, the, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, Werner, about that was when you realized that the, the current uh, hardware that you were purchasing was not, was not up to the job and you were going to have to produce your own, were you disappointed by that or were you actually quite excited that you'd pushed the scale yeah. so far that you had to, to innovate in that area? I, I think at scale, uh, these things start to make sense. Yeah, I think um, maybe, maybe in, in earlier days, and we were, of course, already... Had already all the lessons from Amazon the retailer, which had achieved significant scale. Yeah, um, but of course AWS, in terms of capacity, drives many, many more orders of magnitude of scale beyond that. And at, at that moment, you 
you have to start to learn that you know you need to make dedicated solutions for your customers. Uh, also, to be able to control cost. I think, um, for example, if you look at traditional data center layouts, there's, they're very wasteful. You know, um, there's many, uh, I mean, would it be many off-the-shelf servers still have, what is it, audio components on their board? Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> well, believe me, there's nobody going to play any sounds on, <laughs> on, on any of the servers in our data centers. So uh, being able to sort of take all this wasteful processing out or wasteful components out helps us drive costs down in our, in our data centers. And we do a lot of innovation in our data centers. So combined on one hand, the economies of scale and combine that on the other hand with sort of the innovations that we do in our data centers, in our server building, in our network layouts, in cooling and processing and power and all these kind of things are two, are two of the biggest drivers um, for which we can then reduce cost for customers. Yeah, um, we've, we've made this commitment that if our customers help us both through economies of scale as well as our inventive powers in the data center, these two things combined, if we see lower cost picture arriving for ourselves, then we basically give this money back to our customers through lowering the pricing. Yeah. And we've done that, I think, 55, 56 times yeah. um, over the past 10, 10, 10 years without any competitive pressure. So, Vernon, one of your final lessons learned um, from you know doing this for over 10 years at AWS has been the idea of no gatekeepers because you, know, you don't want to be slowed down by somebody else. Um, and you know, by having you know, IT is no longer a bottleneck, that's a great catalyst for innovation and new approaches to getting things done. You know, what do you think the next 10 years will look like with cloud becoming the new norm? If you, if you would have asked me this 10 years ago right. about where we are now, I, I don't think I would have predicted this. So I think 10 years, 10 years is a very long time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, if I look at if I look at the kind of things that we're doing uh, within AWS, there's some things that will forever be important. Yeah, as I said, security will be forever a number of priority number one. So you can expect us to continue to continue to deliver great tools there for our customers. Uh, secondly, I think international expansion. So. Um, this year, we're launching five new regions. I think we've already launched two, South Korea and, and India. Uh, we've been launching a second, another second one on the, in China, a uh, second one on the East Coast in the US, in Ohio, um, and one in Canada, and one in the UK at the end of the year. Um, and we won't stop after that. Yeah? I think the mm-hmm. third sort of point is still to look at making things simpler. Yeah, um, how can we make sure that, you know, this, this, this 70 plus services that we have with all of the different variations and features within those services, how can we make sure that, that we serve customers well by keeping things simple? I think Mobile Hub, for example, is one of the great examples that may make it much easier for customers to make use of all of our sets of tools uh, through a very simplified interface. I think the, the way uh, Lambda is able to, to simplify architectures uh, means that customers can build much more scalable, much more cost-effective, much more secure infrastructure over time. But we need to continuously keep an eye on making sure that we do this in the most simplest fashion. And then I think there's sort of 
industry trends that will be driver very very big drivers I think in the in the coming years to come. Um, mobile of course is already is is already big, but IoT and especially industrial IoT will be um, will be will start to explode where uh, where our customers in the enterprise are are instrumenting every possible piece of their whether it's the factory floor whether it is the supply chain, whether it is um, the, the trucking fleet, they will instrument everything to create new data sources to be analyzed on top of the, uh, the Amazon platform to get new insights into their business, to optimize the business operations, to improve safety, um, and to maybe find new ways of doing business more, more um, and target their, their customers much better than that they can do now. Fantastic. Well, Werner, thank you so much for coming in to talk to us about the 10 lessons that you've learned in the last 10 years. We really appreciate you coming in and we look forward to seeing what's going to come in the next 10 years. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Always enjoy coming down on the so, Bruno, before you do run, there's one question I have for you in closing. Uh, you tweeted about watching the football, and uh, you had a question whether the free Wi-Fi at the stadium was going to hold up during the game. <laughs> How did you go with the access? Did it work? Well, actually, I followed up on that one. Uh-huh. About five minutes before kickoff, it completely collapsed. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually, I find it this, so I was about, I was inside stadium, let's say, half an hour, 45 minutes before kickoff. Uh, it was a bit early. Just trying to avoid my, uh, trying to battle my, my jet lag. And um, actually sort of five minutes before kickoff, slowly the stadium started to fill up. At that moment, uh, I, I, was, I really wanted this to work. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, one of the surprising things I found, and this is in comparison with US stadium or even stadiums in, in Europe, uh, mobile data services continue to work pretty well. You know, uh, in the US, going to a big football game, American football, or in in Europe, going to a soccer game, uh, there's there's no chance you can post a tweet or or even send a text message. Uh, um, I found that uh, at least in in the Olympic Stadium, or if it's called the ANC Stadium, I believe, um, this worked out really really well. I'm curious to see this Saturday. I'm going to uh, the Sydney Cricket Ground to see how it's uh, how it's working out out there. Awesome. Thank you keep, for letting us know. Keep us posted. <laughs> I will. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Bernard. Thanks again. Signing off. This is Russ. And this is Dr. Pete. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn more about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to the AWS Tech Chat through iTunes, SoundCloud, or by Googling AWS Tech Chat.